you go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Father, as always, we are grateful for the privilege we have to gather together as believers. We do thank you, Father, for a new year, even though, Father, in one sense, it's just one more day after another. Uh, Father, there's a sense of a, a new beginning, uh, starting perhaps things over or beginning new, new projects or whatever the case may be. We thank you, Father, for, again, all the ways that you have blessed us in the past year, our families, us as individuals, our church. And Father, we just wanted to give you the praise and the glory and the honor for all of that. And so we gather together here, Lord, to worship you. Father, we worship and honor you by bowing together in prayer, by gathering to listen to the word being read, uh, by the gathering of tithes and offerings so that we may continue to support the work here and abroad. And then, Father, as we once again focus in on the word and what it says, and we ask that you would give to us a clarity of thought. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us the ability to think through what the word says that, Father, it would always be the desire of our heart to be changed as well as challenged by what the Word gives us. So, Father, we ask again for your blessing on our time as we do thank you for it. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What I thought I would do over the next several weeks, um, since we have finished 2 Corinthians, um, is I am going to uh, preach topically for a little while. I know some of you are stunned by that. Some of you will think I need to repent. Um, <laughs> But uh, I would just do so for a few weeks, and then we would jump into a book from the Old Testament, uh, one that uh, I think most of us have never heard a sermon series on, that would be the book of Lamentations. Uh, so I thought we would dig into that, because I'm convinced that uh, God has preserved all of his word for us. That would be every single book. And uh, there is something there for all of us as we read the word of God. So Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6, it reads, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the past year, maybe the past two years, as we have... Uh, kind of waded our way through many different messes in our country and globally, uh, it's become more and more clear that as people talk about how divided people are or how people, when they discuss things they disagree on, how volatile some become, uh, there's a lot of temptation, I believe, at times for those who desire there to be maybe peaceful resolutions or maybe just a desire to see less tension uh, to maybe begin the compromise on maybe some stands that we take as believers or maybe on some issues. Others are trying to figure out how do we um, verbalize our stand on certain issues? How do we get people to understand why we believe the things that we believe? What I'm talking about is how do we live the Christian life in 2023 uh, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, and what we believe. And so we're going to be looking at this aspect of our Christian life, uh, living our Christian life uh, in the public sphere. And we're going to, I'm going to try to focus really on 
one particular thing today, and then we'll look at some of the issues over the next several weeks, and then we'll move on from there. So here, Paul admonishes these believers that they are to walk in Christ. They are Christians. He talks about being rooted and built up in him, being established in the faith, that they were taught this. Uh, the idea there basically is that we lean on the Word of God, we stand on the Word of God, the Word of God is our foundation for living, the Word of God is our foundation for thinking, the Word of God is our foundation for the way that we understand and the way that we um, interpret the world in which we live in. It is to guide us, it is the truth uh, that we are to believe and that we are to stand on. He tells us here that we are to be careful, that we don't become captivated that we don't become enmeshed in a human tradition or a philosophy that's based on human tradition. Uh, and that can take place really very easily. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We covered that uh, several weeks ago when we were going through 2 Corinthians. We know that as Paul was dealing with all the difficulties that were going on uh, in the church at Corinth, and because of all the many accusations against him, he wanted to understand his approach to life, his approach to what he was doing. And he would repeat it several times, and we saw this being demonstrated for us. And the bottom line is, is that he was not going to follow the way that the world thinks. He was not concerned with, in this sense, building himself up the way that uh, other individuals try to build themselves up and earning the respect and the admiration of others. Uh, his concern was the truth of the Word of God, and so anything that was raised against the knowledge of God, uh, he wanted to see that destroyed, and that was going to be destroyed by the logic that he used. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have uh, swerved from the faith. Even though we primarily think of this passage in terms of maybe discussing differences in theology, there's more to it than that. And what we, I think, need to recognize is that when it comes to really maybe many social issues, there is definitely a moral, spiritual component. Maybe, that, maybe the whole identity of that thing would be a moral and spiritual idea. But there are things that people espouse, things that people say they believe, things that people compromise on that end up compromising what the Word of God says. And so we want to make sure that we are really truly biblical in the way we live, in the way we think, in the way that we speak, uh, in the way that we respond to all of these various issues. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, it says, As it is written, so this gives to us here, this is a very familiar passage, this gives to us here a, our foundational understanding of what the world is like. When we say the world, in that sense, normally what we mean is a world that stands in opposition to God. Remember that if the world is not in submission to God, then they are in opposition. There's no middle ground there. So they are in opposition. So this describes for us the culture we live in. This describes for us um, where many of these various ideas that people have concerning certain issues come from. What does he say? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So the primary problem with the world is verse 18. Their beginning point is wrong. If your beginning point is wrong, then everything that follows after that is going to be marred and is going to be filled with both truth and untruths, or maybe it'll just be a lie from beginning to the end. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says that each one of you has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Though Peter's talking about spiritual gifts in particular and how we are to minister to those things, he does say here that when we speak, when we are speaking on behalf of what the Word of God says, when we are speaking theologically, we are doing so as the oracle of God. That means you need to be very careful to make sure that what you're saying is what the Word of God says, not what you think the Word of God should say. You want to make sure that you're explaining what the Word of God actually says, not what you wish the Word of God would say. The idea here is that, that we need to approach this, uh, you know, the, the, the verbal aspect of our life really very carefully and with great, a great deal of thought because the idea is is that, all, that in all things, God is to be glorified. That is to be the foundation of our life as Christians. And we'll see more of that in a few moments. So the question then is, when I, I mentioned that we're going to be talking about living the Christian life in 2023, how do we do this? How do we live as Christians in the, in the culture in which we have been placed? Because we have been placed by God in this culture at this time. So none of that is accidental. How do we act? How do we speak? How do we think as believers in the one true God? Well, how do we begin? Well, it kind of is tied in with what we read in um, uh, verse 18 of the other passage that I read, where it mentions that there is no fear of God before them from Romans. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Christianity has always been about truth, not just the truth of Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's major and foundational. All truth does come from God. He is the standard of truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. We want to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to somehow think that Christianity is only about religious truth or that Christianity is only about spiritual truth. Now, that doesn't mean that, you, that if you're some kind of a chemist, you can't discover any kind of truth in chemistry unless somehow it's based on the Bible. That's not what we're saying. But we are saying that as we live and operate in the world that God has created, if you are a chemist, you're able to function in a particular way because you understand the world was created by God in a very orderly way, and that what we call the laws of physics, etc., those things exist because that's how God created the world, because he is that way. And so science is able to advance because of God. Take God out of the equation, you begin to have chaos. So we need to recognize that we are to always be those who pursue truth in all things. We want to pursue truth in our lives. We want to see that in our children. And we should be living the same way ourselves. The word fear here, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear means to recognize God's character and to respond by revering, trusting, worshiping, obeying, and serving him. 
That's what the fear of God is talking about here. This is not where you're, you know, just kind of have a, a fright because you know that God is awesome and that God is powerful and that God can strike you dead if you do wrong. God can do all those things, but this is more than just that. It is all of these things where we revere him. We do trust him. He's revealed himself to be trustworthy. We are to trust him. We are to worship him. He is to be worshiped. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. We, were, we are the creatures. He is the creator. We owe him our respect, our reverence, uh, our worship, and we are to do so. We are to obey him. He has the right over us. He has the authority over us. He is our authority. We are to obey him in every way in our lives, and obviously we are to serve him. Again, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. Despise means to hold in contempt, to belittle, or to ridicule. Now, I think we'll see more of this unfold in the weeks ahead, hopefully in a much broader way. Because again, too often we only, not all of us, but we often think of this only in terms of a, a very restricted view of just what the Bible says about certain spiritual things. And maybe outside of that, we'll say, well, yeah, and creation. And a little bit of history because there really was a flood. But much broader than that. And we'll see that when we deal with some of the moral issues that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. What is interesting about the book of Proverbs, or about really the Old Testament, is there are three different Hebrew words that are translated fool. And Proverbs uses all three. The main one uh, is Kessel uh, or Kessel. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. But that's one kind of fool. That is the individual who's characterized by a dull and closed mind. He is thick-headed and stubborn. This word occurs more frequently in Proverbs than uh, the other two words for fool is used 49 times in the book. So by his laziness and short-sightedness, this kind of fool rejects information from others. So there's a big deal made about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, and then what is the attitude of the fool? The fool is the one who may appear to be and even say that he's open-minded and believes in science, but he refuses to acknowledge, really, what I believe, what many of you believe, the truth that's right in front of him, that God does exist. All these things are possible because of God. And we hear it sometimes often when you hear different individuals being interviewed or speaking or maybe in their writings or, you know, podcasts or whatever, and individuals deny this aspect that God really does exist and we owe him our obedience and our faithfulness. So this, so this fool here that is not necessarily someone who's just dumb. This is, this is a specific kind of term characterizing this individual. We're looking inside of them and seeing their heart. And this has nothing to do with IQ. An individual can have a very high IQ and still be like this. They can still be very close-minded to things as well. In fact, I think I've shared with you before, there's a, one was a scientist, one was a mathematician, one uh, was a French mathematician, I think, from the 1700s. And then there was an American scientist, I believe, in the 1900s. I don't remember their names specifically, but they both basically said the same thing. When they were asked about if they believed in evolution, they both said, of course, because if we don't, that means we have to believe in God, and we just can't have that. So there's not a whole lot of scientific thinking going on there. That's not really very logical. You know, that's clearly a presupposition and a prejudice on behalf of that individual, and there are many who live that way. Another word for fool in the book of Proverbs is Nabal, N-A-B-A-L. It is used only three times in Proverbs, and it refers to one who lacks spiritual perception. So 
it's not eliminating the other <coughs> definitions I gave you for fool, but this is what is being emphasized with that word, is that individual lacks spiritual perception. That would also be true of the first individual we spoke of, but this is where the emphasis is. The third kind of fool is arrogant and flippant as well as mentally dull. He is coarse and hardened in his way. That word is used 19 times in Proverbs, and then it's used seven times elsewhere throughout the scriptures. So in verse 7, where it says, again, that um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of uh, knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool, in verse 7, are those who, in their arrogant, coarse ways, reject God and wisdom. Two kinds of people are contrasted in verse 7. Those who humbly fear God and thus acquire true knowledge, and the arrogant fools who by their refusal to fear God demonstrate that they hold wisdom and discipline in contempt. So many individuals would never say, oh yeah, this individual with a high IQ, that that individual holds wisdom and discipline in contempt. They would say they don't do that. Remember that this analysis or this evaluation of that person is coming from God. As God looks into their heart, he says, this here, that individual is being intellectually dishonest. They may want to follow and appear to be disciplined in every aspect of the working of their mind and their life, but they're not. They're holding back a certain part because they do, do not want to acknowledge or submit to God. So the reality then is that individual holds wisdom and discipline in contempt. And so we, we need to recognize that this is not then the arrogant believer saying this about those who don't agree with us. This is God's view of that individual. Uh, and again, has nothing to do with the IQ, but with the attitude and obviously the moral uh, uh, aptitude of the heart and their contempt for God. Another way to say what we read here in Proverbs 1.7 is found in Proverbs 2.10, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is substituted for knowledge. But it really says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the word beginning here, think of it in these terms, it is a prerequisite. So the fear of the Lord is the prerequisite of wisdom. Wisdom more or less is basically the ability to use knowledge in uh, correct ways, in, in understanding something, whatever that happens to be, and being able to make the right decision or do the right thing trying to make a, maybe, maybe even making a, a proper assessment of something or of a situation. So then the beginning or the prerequisite to be able to do that correctly is the fear of the Lord. Again, this is not saying that every decision everybody else makes who's not a, a non-believer is just stupid, dumb, and will never work out. It's not what it's saying. But what it is telling us here, when it comes to <coughs> all of life, the bottom line is, is that what's necessary for living in wisdom in all of life is the fear of God. Wisdom, again, would be, you could use that word for understanding. So the fear of the Lord is the prerequisite of wisdom, and the understanding of the Holy One, or the understanding of God, gives us what? Insight. In a book entitled The Universe Next Door, James Sire defines a worldview. And you've heard a lot of people talk about worldview. I'm going to give you a couple of definitions. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it's kind of foundational, so just kind of want to remind you of these things. He defines a worldview, because everybody has one, even if they've not even thought about it. Uh, he says a worldview is a commitment. It is a fundamental orientation of the heart 
that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions. Presuppositions are assumptions which may be true, may be partially true, or may be entirely false, which we hold, either consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. So uh, when you read some books by some microbiologist who say that they are a vowed atheist, their worldview is God does not exist. God has never existed because there's no such thing as God. That is their presupposition. That then colors everything they look at, how they understand it and how they express themselves. They may hold it inconsistently. They may hold it uh, consistently. But that is how they understand reality. That is his foundation. I'm primarily thinking of Dawkins, but he's not the only one. Uh, that'd be Richard Dawkins. Uh, but the idea there is that that is his worldview, and it can be easily seen there. Philip Ryken says in his book called The Christian Worldview, defines worldview as the structure of understanding that we use to make sense of our world. Our worldview is what we presuppose. It is our way of looking at life our interpretation of the universe, our orientation to reality. It is the comprehensive framework of our basic belief about things. So for the believer, basically our worldview is, how do we understand the world? How do we make sense of the world? When a disaster strikes and a hurricane hits a tropical island and wipes everything out, how do we understand that? Well, we understand that as being the result of sin. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned and made the wrong decision and rebellion to God. And as a result of that, uh, there are a lot of consequences because sin now is in the world. We, we live in a world that's been cursed by sin. So we have an understanding of that. We, we, under, we also understand that these events are in the control of God. We don't always understand why God allows or doesn't allow certain things to happen. But we're not living in fear that a hurricane will suddenly pop up tomorrow in Savannah and wipe us out. Because there's also laws of nature. We know how these things are formed. Because God has uh, developed a world, he's created a world that follows things that we're understanding better and better. So we're able to, to predict certain things to a certain degree. And we understand how things work to a certain degree. Uh, and along with that, we, we have this understanding. But our view of the world is that it is not just haphazard. That, that we understand the things that are going on. When we get sick, we know why. If we get old and die, we know why. When people make bad decisions, when we are betrayed, or if we betray others, we know why. Because of what the Bible tells us. That gives us our understanding of reality. We presuppose these things to be so. Our presuppositions are based on the information given to us in the scripture. And you may be surprised if we thought about it, how much of your life and thinking is deeply affected by your belief in the Bible. That's the way it should be. But a great deal of it is. Just this idea, we believe that children should obey their parents. Where do you think that came from? Well, I believe everything comes from God. Someone just didn't wake up one day and say, you know, we have these little critters running around all over the place. That would be a lot easier if we could somehow, let's make it a law. Let's just start saying that these little kids, our children, they should obey us. That's not what happened. It was actually already in the mind of man. Where did that come from? God had revealed it to him. Right? The idea that there should be faithfulness between a husband and wife. Right? That, that's, that comes from the scripture. There's many things that we believe just we might call a, uh, a standard of rightness and wrongness. Because sometimes people say, well, why do you think that's right? Well, because it just is. 
Well, it's not really just because it just is. There's a standard that's been given to us by God. And so there's a great deal of what we do and say and think and how we act and what we believe our obligations are, our responsibilities. All those things um, come from really this, this biblical worldview that's given to us in the Word of God. There are four fundamental questions. I have them in your notes. You've probably heard them before. Any, if you listen to any individual who speaks on, on apologetics or is an apologist, these things will come up. And usually if they have an introduction to apologetics, they will mention these questions. So we're not going to dwell on them. But again, this is foundational to what we're going to be getting into. Because again, we are Christians. Number one, who am I? Or what is the nature, task, and purpose of human beings? You and I actually have an answer to that question. We believe that we are created in the image of God to serve God, to honor God, to worship God, and to enjoy God. We believe that. And so we have an answer to that that comes from the scripture. Where am I? Or what is the nature of the universe and the world that I live in? We believe that God has created the universe, that, that God created the world for us to live in. And so and we recognize that this is where we are. I'm part of this plan that God has. I don't know what his plan is for, you know, there's, there's a guy that lives in Mexico. His name is Pedro. Pretty good guess. A lot of guys named Pedro. I have no idea what God's plan is for his life. But I know that God has a plan for his life. He's part of this cosmos that God has created. And he needs to fulfill his responsibilities and I fulfill my responsibilities. And all these things are going to work out in a wonderful way because we're all going to be moved in the same direction that God desires uh, to culminate in the return of Christ and what we would call the eternal order. And so none of these things, there's no loose strings that are, that are taking place. All, there's a cohesive unity to all of this that is held together by God himself. Number three, why are people the way they are? A lot of us wonder that. It's pretty simple to figure that out. You believe the Bible. Right? They are individuals who are in bondage to sin. And so they are naturally selfish. They are naturally greedy. They will naturally lie. If you're unsure of the things that we do naturally, watch little kids, and you'll see it. Uh, you'll see meanness, and you know, you'll, still, you'll see cuteness as well. Uh, but you're going to see all this, these other things. And as adults, this goes on continuously. We see this in the world in which we live in. We have been, for the most part, sheltered from the worst part of the nature of man because of the structure of the country we live in. Because a great deal of it was based on what the scriptures say. It, it was. Because when you read other materials and books that talk about the way life is in many other countries, it is worse than it is not good. It's unbelievable. It is incredible uh, how nasty and how mean and how cruel uh, this world really is. We have been in every way blessed uh, beyond measure in where we live. So we should be grateful, even though our country is not perfect, no one's saying it's perfect, but the bottom line is, is what we possess, what we have, what we take for granted. We can't help it because this is all that we know. This is what we've been born into. It is fantastic. And imagine how great this is where, where you have man who at least gives a passing respect, uh, nod of respect to what the Bible says. Look at what has been built. Now, we're moving in the wrong direction, I believe. Like people believe that, but it was, it's still so much better. Just in the area of justice, it's just so much better. Uh, than in so many other places. But nonetheless, we understand why people are the way they are. What is the basic problem or the obstacle that keeps me from attaining fulfillment? In other words, how do I understand evil? Uh, and we, again, we have the answers to that from the scripture. And then, of course, what is the remedy? 
Or how is it possible to overcome this hindrance to my fulfillment? Or, put another way, which people don't like, how do I find salvation? What is the remedy? Well, we know what it is. We know that no matter how great the people may be that serve in human government, it's not going to cut it. We know that. We know that money is not the remedy. We know that. We know that building a fortress is not the remedy. We know that. Because the problem is the heart of man. And so we, understanding the gospel and why God has given us the gospel, the good news of Christ, why he sent Christ, that is the remedy for man's number one and main problem. It is his sinful heart, period. When, pe when you hear people talk about the various forms of, you know, I guess, economic theories, and there are those who talk about the evils of capitalism. Capitalism in and of itself is not evil. It's the men in capitalism that are evil. That's where the greed is. Because communism is not necessarily the answer, because communism has the same problem. Men with corrupted, evil hearts. Socialism has the same problem. Men with corrupted, evil hearts. Some of those systems probably could function really pretty well if everybody was a believer, a true believer. They may not be perfect, but they'd function really well. But we don't have that, because that's not the remedy. The rem what is the remedy for finding fulfillment for the individual? It is being in right relationship with God. And we're never going to be a right with anything until that is taken care of. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about all those things. Just, we just kind of just scratch the surface. But I'm laying all this out as, as some foundational principles and some things that we need to think about. Because primarily, when it comes to the way we think, how we form our opinions, what we think about our opinions, we do need to understand something. There's something we need to understand as believers. Because I do, I am convinced that sometimes, some of us, Sometimes, maybe many of us, end up taking a stance in rebellion to God unwittingly. We don't know that. And, we, and I want us to become aware of it. Revisiting all those verses that we read this morning and trying to really meditate on those things and what they mean in everyday living and thinking and reacting in the world in which we live in. You will hear me, you probably heard me say this before. Um, I say this a lot at times and having discussions with individuals, if they are believers, and I would say something like, we're not allowed to think that, or we're not allowed to say that. What do I mean when I say that? Well, when I say that, let me explain to you. I'm not saying that I forbid you to think or say something, because I don't have that kind of authority. What I do mean is, as a Christian, you're not allowed to think certain things, because if you do, you are in rebellion to God. That's what I mean by that, that's why I only use that in the context of having any kind of discussion with another believer. I would never say that to a non-believer. You're not allowed to think that. But to a believer, I would say that. We don't very often think in these kinds of terms because we are independent-minded Americans. We are independent-minded human beings. We don't like anyone putting any kind of restriction on us. We believe that we are entitled to our opinions. Now, though we may not say it, we value what the Bible says, but we often really do think that we make the final decisions on all matters. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'll use an easy one first, and then one that's more complicated afterwards. A man divorces his wife because the thrill is gone. We would say that's a sin. A Christian cannot condone, approve, or engage in such an action. 
That action is rebellion against God. That aspect never changes. That's easy to figure that out. If that's the situation, that's wrong. That's sin. But remember, when we say that's sin, that's in rebellion to God. There is nothing in that scenario for that I've just, if I've given you all the facts that he's just divorcing his wife because the thrill is gone, there's nothing in that that will ever change the fact that his decision to divorce his wife and leave his wife and or family is rebellion against God. It's not just an unfortunate thing for her. This is not just some thing that, you know, we just have to put up with because people are sinful. If that individual is a Christian, well, actually, if he's a non-believer, it's the same thing. But as a believer, he is rebelling against God. That act may be a revelation or a manifestation that an individual never became a believer in Christ. I'm not saying it is. But I'm also definitely not going to say that it's not. That may be. That's not a gray area. That individual is basically saying, I don't care what God says. And we don't, we don't like that. Oh, you can't say that, Bob. That is so harsh. Have you read your Bible? Remember there was a time when, when uh, Israel, the Ark had been taken, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken. The Philistines had it. This is the course of events. They were able to get it back. David's having it transported. They put it on an ox cart. And, and, and everyone is happy. They're excited. And they're going along. And it hits, you know, it's going down this rocky road. And it begins to fall off the cart. And there's a man there who loves the Ark of the Covenant. He loves the God of Israel. And he, being brave and reactionary, reaches out and prevents that Ark from falling to the ground and either being damaged or, or, or falling in the mud and being dirty. And he does that, and he dies instantly. No mercy. No, why did you do that? Because God had said, don't ever touch it. But he meant well. That doesn't matter. The intent of the heart doesn't matter. What does God want? Obedience. That's it. We, as Americans, maybe just because we're humans as well, we have a hard time with that. We really love our exceptions. We relish exceptions. Many of you have in your mind, right now a brain, in your brain, you have memorized a list of exceptions that you can recall at any time, depending on whatever situation you're in. It happens. God, if you ever just read through the Old Testament and just look at his dealings with Israel, yes, he is incredibly merciful to them. Absolutely. But there were times when God said, uh, he gives them a command, they disobey, he comes and says, but I said, da, 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 da. It just doesn't matter. Saul was told when he, was, when he wiped out this one, uh, when he went to war, that he was to wipe out everyone, to keep nothing, and Samuel comes along and says, uh, Saul, I can hear sheep. What's going on? Oh, I kept the best for the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice the best ones to God. What does Samuel say? God desires obedience, not sacrifice. God was the one who gave all the sacrificial laws. But what did God say? It's obedience. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room in that. There's just, there's none. It's, it's incredible. And so what happens is we end up going back, it goes back to the book of Genesis in the very beginning when Adam and Eve uh, sinned. When Eve was being tempted by, by Satan, and I believe this is the intent of what he said, 
because Satan told Eve that God knows if you eat of this tree, you will know good from evil. And I don't think that Adam and Eve were sitting there in ignorance of what was right and what was wrong. I, I, they already knew that. And so as you read that and think about it, and, and I've read a lot of different books on this, and I think this is, this is where I, what I believe, is that what Satan was communicating to her is that if you eat of this fruit, you will be the one who will be able to determine what is right and wrong. And that's what we think often as human beings. You see, whenever we have an exception, we believe we have the right to determine that. And we don't like to think it out that way. I mean, I, I know I think that way. You've heard me tell you a lot, you've heard me before I tell you about my weaknesses when I drive. You, do you know when I speed? I know you all speed, so don't sit there and judge me for this. But when I speed, I only speed when I'm in a hurry. But we all know that's not justification. And I know it's not a justification because if the lights are flashing in the school zone, I go 25, exactly, or less. Because I know it's no tolerance. But I know that there may be tolerance at other times. So if the speed limit is 35, 42, 43, I see no police, 49. <laughs> a lot of you do the same thing driving around these roads here. You know you do. But at those times, really what we're doing is, is we, we believe, all right, we have a set of, we believe that we have a right to determine that I can do this and I can do this safely. And you know that if the cop was to pull you over, you'd be annoyed. I can't believe he's pulling me over. Or you can't catch a bank robber today, or whatever it happens to be. But this is where we are. So we have to come back. When it, and again, all, I'm saying all these things because what we're going to be getting into in the next several weeks are the very, these various moral, political, social issues, and we need to be able to take a stand on what the Scripture says. And that's very important. But we'll deal with a real easy one next week first, and then it gets, it'll get much more complicated. But now let me get to a more complicated scenario. A woman is physically abused. She divorces her husband for her safety. So the main question that usually comes out of that is, can she remarry? No. Now I understand that she may have divorced him to be safe physically. I have no problem with that, even though, the, even though that's how we deal with things legally. But I'm also convinced that in the eyes of God, they're still together. That there's a lot of things in that, but when it comes to is she free to remarry, the answer is no, she's not. Now there is, I believe, something that are off the hook. If he then goes out and remarries, now the marriage is over, and I think she's free. But if he doesn't, she's not free. Well, what will happen is, if when you say that, people will say things like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, life is so hard for her now. This life is hard for her and her kids. That's just so unfair. It is unfortunate, and our desire to help alleviate her pain and misery is not wrong. But her remarrying at that point is not a proper or a biblical or a Christian or a God-honoring solution. We are thinking, certainly God doesn't want her to suffer because her husband was a jerk. Well, I'm not going to say that God wants her to suffer, but it is his will that she suffer until she's free, according to the scripture, to remarry. Now, a lot of these things we can discuss, but there are just certain points when you come to. Where, that's why when people ask me to marry them and they have a previous marriage, I ask a lot of questions. 
You just want to make sure. And many times, the individuals are, have at least at some point become free, but I want to go by what the scripture says. And I know that when it comes to that issue, because I did this once, when I was, used to manage a Christian bookstore, this young guy, why he did this, I have no idea, because I was managing a Christian bookstore. I wasn't really in any kind of full-time ministry. And this guy that was in the army came in and was asking me all these questions because of this girl he loved, and I guess she was married, if she was going to be divorced, and he wanted to know if he could marry her and what the Bible said. And I said, yeah, dude, you just need to get out of that right now. I said, That's, you're, not, you're not in any situation where you can marry her. This is just all wrong. And then he said, well, I read this Christian book, and I said, I can. I said, you, you did? It's Christian? So what I did, because I'm prone to do this kind of thing, we had a set of books in the, in the, in the bookstore. There are six volumes. They're about that thick. And you can look up every single book published in America. And so I did my diligence and did my best to find every single Christian book written on divorce and remarriage. This was 1984, 85, around there. And I found 38. And so I bought all of them and I read them all. The conclusion I came to was, you can believe whatever you want to believe about divorce and remarriage and you will find a Christian book that agrees with it. But what does the scripture say? Because all those books will quote the Bible and use the Bible, but what does the Bible say? They all could not be right. That was an impossibility. And when you get back into what the scripture says and move away from the various opinions that people have, I believe it becomes really, really pretty clear cut in a lot of these situations. One time I was, I was uh, counseling a couple, they were having just some minor problems. It really wasn't a big deal. But I, I want to give you the story because, you know, when we deal with these issues, we want to, we're, we're going to be always rely a lot on being logical. And I want you to understand that being logical is what it means at times to be a Christian. Logic comes from God. Like God speaks logically. God thinks logically. God is rational in all that he does. And so we need to think logically. But we also have to remember that our starting point can make a difference. And a starting point, you may even think logically from the wrong starting point, and you'll definitely come to the wrong conclusion. So when I was talking with this couple, they were having disagreements because they both worked and she was having to go out of town for something for her job and she was going to swing by and see her parents. And so she had laid out how she was going to do her travel. He said, that's just, that's just stupid, that's wrong, that makes no sense, it's not even logical. And that was their discussion every day for a while and so they, that was the first thing they brought up when they saw me. And so I had him explain to me what he was saying and why he was saying it. I had her explain to me what she was saying and what he was saying. And I said, ah, well, the lights came on. It's pretty easy. And I, so I, I looked at him. And I said, well, here's the problem. I says, you are saying that what you are giving to her is logical. And based on your presupposition, it is logical. Because in your mind, the logical thing to do is to go from point A to point B, see her parents, point C, go to whatever this thing she has to go to, and then D, this other thing she has to go to, and then come home. Because in your mind, you want to have travel to the shortest and use the least amount of gas. And so your plan is logical. But it's not logical to her because that's not, that's not what she's trying to accomplish on this. 
You see, she wants to, on this trip, spend as much time as possible with her parents. So she's going to leave a little early and go see her parents, then go to this thing, and then go back to see her parents, then because she wants to spend a couple days there, then go back to this thing over there she has to go to, and then take the long way home so she can see her parents again, and then come home. And I said, if your goal is to see your parents as much as you can, that is logical. Because she knows she's not going to see them again until Christmas. I said, so whatever you're saying, you at you least can't tell her that that's not logical. It makes all the sense in the world if you understand what her goal is. And so what we need to recognize sometimes is that our presupposition may be wrong. When it comes to the abortion issue, which we'll deal with in great detail next week, sometimes an individual's desire to help an individual in a difficult situation is their starting point. But for the Christian, I'm not saying we throw that away, but that is not your starting point. Our starting point is what? Fear of God. That's our starting point. We reverence, obey, worship, and honor God. And all we do say and decide. That is the overriding principle. Anything that conflicts with that then goes by the wayside. But too often what happens is because we believe that God is loving, which he is, and God wants us to be loving, which he does, we somehow think maybe outweighs that or we don't even consider that or maybe we just haven't thought of that. And so we want to be guided by love, care, and concern and we want to decide this over here for this individual who maybe is in an unfortunate situation and now pregnant. But you see, that can get us to where we are actually in rebellion to God. Because there are certain fundamental truths you can never escape. But we'll deal with that next week. Again, what we need to recognize is this. Is sometimes when it comes to disagreements, it's not just merely a difference of opinion. But it is blatant rebellion against God and against the will of God. We sometimes don't want to stand there because that's unpopular. Because it may cause us to appear to be harsh or maybe appear to be closed-minded to others. I'm not saying that you shouldn't care what others think, but that should never be the guiding principle. The guiding principle is what does God think? I want to be faithful to God first. When Jesus returns, he wants to find us faithful, faithful to him, faithful to the word, not faithful to the opinions of others, not faithful to being well-liked, not faithful to where everyone else thinks you're a wonderful individual, but faithful to God. And so we have to think about these things biblically. Sometimes the conclusions cannot be quickly reached. Sometimes there may be a lot of complicating things that we have to kind of struggle through. But I believe that we'll be able to do so. And I also know that there are many incredibly gifted believers, men and women, who are thinking through all of these issues as well and have written in great detail to help us to work through these things. But we must determine that's what we're going to do. Because that is how we live as Christians in 2023. Just assume you're not going to make everybody happy. Assume everyone is not going to agree with you. They aren't anyway, no matter what stance you take. So you just might as well determine, I'm going to be on the Lord's side. As Joshua declared back in the Old Testament, you need to decide whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen. We don't say that in arrogance. We say that in humility as we submit to what the Word of God has. And if we are then subjected to 
ridicule, if we are then subjected to prejudicial treatment, then so be it. I trust the Lord. Father, we thank you again for your grace, kindness, and love. And we pray, Lord, you help us to contemplate what it means to be a Christian, to be one who is believed in the good news of Jesus Christ, and to recognize that it is not just this small little aspect of our life that we believe what Jesus did for us spiritually, and that our soul is saved, and that we just await death uh, so that we can go to heaven and we just live life the way that we want to live. I pray, Lord, you help us to realize that you have redeemed the entirety of the human person that my mind, my heart, my will, my body has been redeemed. To recognize that the commands you've given us to be pure in mind and pure in body are given to us because we are now your children and represent you in all that we do say, do and say. And so, Father, we know that there can be great difficulty, maybe fear and trepidation, in living, really, it, in the society we live in now, it will be boldly for your name's sake. Give us courage. I know, Lord, that we will gain much courage by continuing to read your word, praying for each other and praying with each other. We ask that you would reveal the flaws in our thinking and the flaws in our reactions to others and our, the flaws in the way that we live life. That, Father, these things may be addressed. That, Father, we may live in absolute freedom, the freedom that comes from knowing you and knowing that we've been fully accepted by the King of Kings. Father, sometimes it would be revealed to us because we may actually end up preferring our view over the scripture or the, over the biblical view. And so it may be revealed that we really have not ever surrendered ourselves to Christ, that we have maybe gone through the motions. I pray, Lord, that if that is the case with anyone here, I pray, Lord, that you will, in an overwhelming way, reveal that to them that they will recognize, Father, that they have a great need for Christ and that it goes way beyond just giving a, a head nod to that Jesus existed and died. But the Lord, that you desire the whole man, the whole heart, the whole person. We thank you, Father, for your great patience with us. And Father, we ask that you will bless us because we're needy people and we need your blessing to live for you and to live successfully as Christians where you've placed us. We thank you and do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.